As the choir finds their seat, we turn to the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, Micah, to begin our Advent season. We start with the very first words of his prophecy. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of King Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you people, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Then the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will burst open like wax near the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundation. All her images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Attend to us, O God, as you always do. Crack us open in such a way that we may hear your word spoken this morning we may in fact be both confronted by who you are, renewed by what you've done and are doing. Speak to us, dear Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today is the first Sunday in Advent, which means it's the first Sunday in the new church year. In other words, for the church, today is New Year's Day. And what I want you to know as we start off this year together is that this year we're going to spend the whole year and follow the church calendar much more closely than we usually do. We typically follow the calendar somewhat loosely, meaning we recognize Advent and Christmas, Lent and Easter But we don't always focus on the other special Sundays of the year as much as we might. This year we're going to. We're going to be a year steeped in the year of the church, the calendar of the church. Part of the reason we're doing that this year is this church, along with others in the Metroplex, has been given a grant by the Lilly Endowment to lift up, to do a project that helps boost participation in music in the life of the church. And so as part of our project, we are coupling that with a following of the church calendar more closely. So those two things are going to be happening. Of course, there's the education and 
alongside that, you'll see all kinds of things. We'll do some different things with music. Started it off with Queen this morning, evidently. <laughs> but we're also going to sing the Apostles' Creed after the conclusion of the sermon. A uh, little different group. But that's what we're going to do. And so what I want you to know about the church calendar is that it is patterned around the life of Christ from start to finish. Actually, it's more than that. It's not just something that is patterned after the life of Christ. The church year is the life of Christ. It starts with Advent and goes to Christ's birth. And then Christ is baptized on baptism of the Lord's Sunday, and then we head into Lent that honors the 40 days he was uh, tempted in the wilderness, then it goes to the cross and death, and then Easter and resurrection, followed by the encounters we have alongside the disciples with Jesus after Easter, the resurrection encounters, then Christ ascends on Ascension Sunday and the very next week, Pentecost, we are given the gift of of the Holy Spirit, and after that we spend the rest of the year reflecting on Jesus and his ministry and its significance for us. And then it all ends with Christ the King Sunday that was last week. It is by its very nature the life of Christ coming alive in our hearts through worship. So if you were to start today and you had perfect attendance for the entire year, you would have experienced the full breadth of Christ by the end of it. And it all starts with Advent. The word Advent itself comes from a Latin root meaning the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. It's a season spent in expectation and preparation. We spend the season of Advent in a sense pretending that Jesus has not yet come and that we are preparing for his arrival. It's as if every year we enter a a spiritual time machine that catapults us back to the time past before the shepherds were in the field, before the cross, before the announcement to Mary that we just heard, before the dawn of our faith, when there was only a, a promise hanging in the air of one who would come. Go back to that time to the time of the prophets like Micah. We're going to use Micah as our guide through these few weeks of Advent this year. You might think of Micah as the little prophet that could, because he's not quite like any of the other prophets. Oh, he starts off well. He starts off like most would. Like most of the prophets, he begins somewhere at the beginning with an announcement that God is coming, the Lord is coming, then follows that with a description of the expected effects of God's arrival. God is coming out of his place, Micah shouts, and the mountains will melt and the valleys will burst open. Prophets often wrote like that because that's what they expected. They expected the earth to shake and the mountains to fall as God rides in in flaming fire. So Micah starts off with that kind of language. But then he does something a little different. 
As Professor James Lindbergh points out, in verse 5, we just read a moment ago, in verse 5 comes somewhat of a shock. Because in most prophecies, the Lord comes to rescue the people, like in Judges 5 or in Isaiah 64. But here, it's almost as if we have God being summoned in response to Israel's sin and Judah's transgression. In other words, the people of God's sin and transgression. And Micah is, in effect, grabbing us all by the tail and marching us right into the courtroom, right down to the front to face the judge. For two whole chapters, Micah does this, describing, talking about the corruption of the world and the judgment of God that is coming. And we're guilty, of course. We know that. I mean, all you have to do is look out the window into our world to be reminded of it. We are guilty of a great many things, directly or indirectly, known to us or unknown to us. We are guilty. Micah was looking out at that same kind of world. In Micah's day, it was a world filled with corruption. Landowners were devising ways to gain more land at the expense of the small farmer. Political leaders were conducting building projects in Jerusalem at the expense of the poor, exploiting them for labor, and the loss of many lives, expendable, you know. Priests and other religious leaders seemed to only be in it for the money. They were all, in Micah's eyes, clinging to their idols. Today's not all that different, right? We too have our idols. The question we need to ask is not whether we have idols or not, but what idols do we have? Might be money. If I could just get enough money, everything would be all right. It's an idol. Or maybe it's simply the idea that if we could just get our life organized in such a way, if we could just get it all together, if we could just get these things in place, and if everyone would just behave and do what I want them to do, then everything will be okay. It's more subtle, but it's, it's an idol. We have our idols. To that, Micah says... Without mincing words, God is coming. He's coming in judgment. It's not exactly what we want to hear. Have you ever set foot in a courtroom? Have you ever had to stand in front of the judge and receive a verdict for something you've done and then wait for the punishment? Even if it's just a speeding ticket, have you ever had to do that? Go in front of the judge. Present your case and wait to see what the judge decides. If you have, even for the smallest of things, you know that it is not the most comfortable place in the world. I mean, you don't know if the judge is going to go light on you or are you going to receive the full 
brunt and extent of the law. Which is it going to be? Did I smile enough? If I could just maybe get the judge on my side, maybe maybe they'll let me off a little bit. When you're in a courtroom, though, you know right away that you have absolutely no power whatsoever. It's as if you were placing your life, even for a moment, in the hands of someone else. That's the feel Micah is trying to create here. Because for Micah, that's what being judged by God feels like. To be judged by God means to place your life in God's hands, not knowing what's going to happen next. So like the first readers of Micah, we find ourselves, too, standing in front of the judge, and the verdict is guilty. Then we wonder what the punishment's going to be. What is the punishment? Is God going to leave us for good? Give up on us what give up on us altogether? What's the punishment? We know the verdict, okay, but what's the punishment? Well, this is where God is the one to surprise us. This is the one place where not a prophet, but God shocks us with what the penalty is. Instead of putting us in prison with a lifetime sentence or leaving us there alone with the weight of our guilt, we instead are given God's unmerited favor. Instead of locking us up, God sets us free that we might live a different way. The verdict is guilty. But the penalty is grace. Grace. That's something Micah knew deep down, even though the Messiah had not come yet. After pointing his finger at a corrupt and messy world and speaking of God's judgment for two entire chapters, once you get to the end of chapter 2, Mark turns around to face us. It's as if in these first two chapters he's been walking away just saying, y'all are worthless, you're worthless, God is coming and you're going to be judged. He stops and he turns around with a smile on his face and says to us in no uncertain terms, but you can trust the judgment of God because one day God will gather us all together like sheep in a fold. One day God has promised to be with us once and for all. Micah believes that. Luke believes it too. As he shares that story of the angel letting Mary know about God's hope in the form of the one she is to give birth to, he will reign in the house of Jacob forever, says Luke. His kingdom will have no end. In other words, God in the flesh, that's the penalty. The punishment for our guilt is none other than Jesus Christ himself. That's the reason we can trust it. So for this first week in Advent, Micah challenges us to live with the coming judgment of God Spend a week learning to trust that which we have no authority over. 
One thing I can tell you for sure is that if you can, if you can learn to trust God's very judgment, you will find hope on the other side of it. There's always hope on the other side. Grace on the other side. Micah knows it. So does Luke. When it comes to God, there is always hope. Always. Trust me.